This is a whole lot of gray, and I'm your host, Anish Anandra. My next guest is the founding partner of one of India's leading law firms, is a foremost expert in issues surrounding data, security, and privacy, and is also the host of his own podcast, The Ex Machina. Ladies and gentlemen, it is an absolute honor and privilege to welcome Mr. Rahul Mahathan. Mr. Mahathan, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Anish. I'm, I'm glad to be here. That's amazing. So, I think let's just jump right into something I believe a lot of my listeners would be very, very eager to know. Uh, you are a supremely successful advocate yourself. What's your story? Why did you decide to become an attorney? I mean, if you ask my mother, she said uh, that, uh, you know, I kept arguing with her so much that the, probably the only uh, profession that really suited me was, uh, was law. Uh, and yeah, I mean, you know, I've, I've always liked to take a point and argue, you know, both sides of it, try to figure out the pros and cons. And, and um, I guess, you know, it just sort of naturally led to this. Uh, I don't think I planned it. It's not like I, you know, when I was five, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, this is a good old case. Of I'd say I pretty much stumbled into it, but but when I, well, when I when you actually get into it, um, yeah, it was it's it's sort of what I was what I was born to be. Uh, this is this is uh, the area. This is the profession that I think uh, most of my skills are are ideally suited for. That's amazing. It's kind of your calling, and I think that is evident for everybody to see. So, in addition to heading a firm as large as Trilegal at the tech media and telecom practice, no less. You also write extensively online and you host your own podcast as well. What is your secret? Like, how do you balance all of those things? Um, look, I, you know, th there are only 24 hours in the day and you've got to sleep for eight, eight of them. Right. Um, and you just have to make the most of, of the time that you have. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I've, I, I try to organize myself. Um, I know that I have to get a podcast episode out every fortnight, which means there's a certain amount of planning that I have to do. Um, and uh, I put that into a schedule. I have to get a column out every week. I know there's a certain amount of planning I have to do, and I put that into a schedule. Uh, and then I work the rest of the day uh, around that. I, you know, I pretty much take it a day at a time, but um, I have a I have a good sense of what I need to achieve at the end of the day, the week, the fortnight. Uh, you kind of reflect periodically on what you've done every, you know, two, three days or. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of a little obsessive about uh, being as efficient as possible um, with, uh, with my day. Uh, so, uh, you know, one of the things I, I, it's, it's a bit nerdy, but one of the uh, techniques I use is uh, David Allen's getting things done uh, technique, um, right. which could you share uh, the yeah. with our listeners? Uh, no, no, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a book. Um, and essentially, he says, look, parcel your day. Um, write, make your list of things to do. Um, and don't worry about uh, the thing that you have to do un until you actually have to do it. And you know, half, half the time, uh, we're bogged down with you know, all the many things that we think we have to do. Um, and that get, gives us anxiety. Uh, so I've, I've managed to say, look, I'm not going to be recording the podcast till day after tomorrow. Um, that's the earliest I can get to the studio. Uh, so, you know, why worry about it now? Uh, and I focus on the things I have to do now. 
No, fair enough. I think that that is an amazing tip. Generally, take things step by step as and when they come. Uh, and another thing I wanted to ask you regarding your lifestyle is I read recently that you try and consume 52 books in a calendar year. Is this true? Yeah, I mean, I, I try to read a book a week. Um, so it just adds up to 52. I, this enough. is the third year that I've been doing it. I mean, I've always read a lot. Uh, but uh, three years ago, actually, uh, you know, a friend of mine told me that he reads a book a week. And then, you know, when I heard it, I said, that's just insane. It's not possible. Right. Um, and he, if anything, is more busy than I am. Uh, and, and then I said, look, let me just try it. Uh, and once you, once you start doing it, if you really like reading, um, right. it's, it's sort of easy, but you know, the, the thing is, I don't, I don't try to read war and peace. Uh, right. but, you know, I pick books that are, that are, you know, within my ability to, um, and, uh, yeah, uh, you know, it's not so hard. This is my third year of doing it. And I think I'm, I'm a couple of weeks ahead because of the lockdown. So, uh, it's going to serve me in good stead towards the end of the year when, you know, no, absolutely, absolutely. I think, I think, I think there's no, no denying the value of reading. And now that we have all this extra time on our hands, I think it is a great habit to try and inculcate. Uh, so, which is why I want to ask you: uh, all the books, I mean, among the books that you've read recently, uh, do you have a couple you'd like to recommend to me and our listeners? Yeah, look, I mean, there are tons of tons of really good books. I tend to read uh, a mixture of, um, you know, sort of sort of um, uh, uh, science, uh, popular science. I, I would read yeah, some science fiction, uh, and I would read a lot of books that really pertain to the area of work that I'm in. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, uh, Shoshana Zuboff's. Uh, surveillance capital is a great book if that's if that's an area uh, that you're looking at right. um, uh, 25 minds is a great book if you're looking for different perspectives on artificial intelligence mm -hmm. um, Ted Chang's exhalation uh, is a phenomenal science fiction book um, which in many ways you know if I was to teach this kind of the kind of stuff that I do I'd just pick each one of his stories um, and having uh, you know, one of the lesson yeah, each each story is sort of near fiction. It's it's almost sort of possible, uh, mm -hmm. and you know, there's nothing like taking hypotheticals out of science fiction uh, to explain technology law. Right, that's that's quite that's quite an insight for sure. And no, thank you. I'll definitely look up those three books, and I'll urge my listeners to do the same. Those are all definitely areas up my alley of interest. Uh, so speaking of alleys of interest and surveillance and privacy. I want to get to the meat of this conversation. So you are one of India's leading experts on data and privacy. And given how interconnected we're all becoming as a global society, and given that, you know, various governments around the world have implemented these surveillance programs, I just wanted to ask you, do you think the concept and notion of privacy is dead today? I don't know if it's sort of the, uh, the concept of privacy as a whole, mm -hmm. but certainly the way in which we've been uh, trying to protect privacy over the last you know, 10, maybe 20 years, uh, that, is, uh, that has changed quite significantly. And, and by that, I mean, um, you know, for, uh, for the longest time, uh, since you know, 1984, when Europe came up with the database directive, uh, we've been uh, 
protecting our privacy on the basis of consent. Uh, and so we say that um, you know, I, if I am to uh, you know uh, violate your privacy, I will do that uh, if only after I've taken your consent. Right. And that that might have been possible when you know people uh, would ask you one question or two questions at a time. Uh, but today our privacy policies are so complex. Um, the amount of uh, applications and services that are collecting our personal data and information are so varied that at the end of the day, um, you know, the amount of uh, of these privacy the privacy policies we're required to accept, uh, it, you know, it's just it's it's um, it's too much for anyone to really um, fully appreciate what they're consenting to. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the point I make, therefore, is that your privacy may not be dead. Uh, but certainly the consent-based mechanism for protecting privacy, if not dead, is, um, is, is seriously suffering in the context of the modern uh, technology world. Wow, that, that is just an amazing insight right there. And which actually leads me, which is a great segue to my next question, is I recently read your piece in LiveMint. I think it was dated till October 2019 or thereabout. Oh, pardon me if I'm getting the date wrong. But you talked about how with this discussion about consent and data ownership needs to shift to alternative models to be looked at, right? Uh, so such as like data trust, which focus on the subjects and collectors. We'll touch upon that in just a second, but I wanted you to share your insights with me and my listeners as to what do you think the biggest issues we've faced on the topic of data ownership and consent are? Like, why have they been suffering and what do you think the biggest barriers hindering their progress exactly are? Okay, so look, I mean, I, I look at the consent problem um, with uh, three, in three stages, right? Three increasing stages. So in the, in the first place, um, we are required today uh, to sign up to privacy policies um, and very often, uh, the, uh, the, 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 sort of the service providers that, that make us sign up are essentially asking us um, uh, to sign up to things uh, that even they don't know when they're going to use. So you, know, you just get one bite of the cherry if you're getting a new customer in. You want him to sign up to as many terms and conditions as you can because you quite frankly don't know which direction your product is going to go. Right. Um, so that's the first problem. I, you know, the privacy policies today are so complicated that it's difficult to really understand what it is. Right. The second problem is that the way in which services are designed today, they're interconnected. So, you know, your, your uh, Google database is sort of the database on which everything is kept, but then you connect all sorts of things to that database. So, you know, take Google or Dropbox or iCloud or anything like that. That sort of forms the basic database, but then lots of services connect to that. And the privacy policy that governs the Google database or the iCloud database uh, allows you to connect other things with your consent to it. But right. neither Apple nor the second service provider ever figured out what the consequences of connecting these two privacy policies would be. And right. so because of the interconnectedness of the various databases, it is actually impossible for, for people uh, to figure out uh, what the implications of their consent are once we layer services upon services upon services. And, you know, the, the good example is my Fitbit actually calculates um, or it collects all sorts of personal information about me. I connect that um, to, uh, to Gmail. I connect that to services like IFTT. 
to tell me things about me, send me an email when I haven't gone to the gym or something like that. Right. No one really figures out who has the data, who, you know, what is the privacy between all these interconnected services. So that's a second level. And the third level is, you know, traditionally we only applied privacy law to personal data. But today, Internet of Things devices, uh, a lot of these sort of uh, chips that are around, uh, you know, smart refrigerators, uh, the um, Alexas and, and all these devices that are now uh, uh, collecting information ambiently as it were. Right. Very often they collect information which doesn't elevate itself to the level of personal information. Um, and still, if you layer all that information one on top of the other, you will start because they're so interconnected to get information which is deeply personal. And that information you've got uh, without ever seeking consent, because you never had to seek consent in the first place. This was never personal information. You didn't need to get consent. But when you layer many, many levels of non-personal data on top of each other, you end up with uh, something which is deeply personal. That's wow. That's that, Thank you so much for that breakdown. And now that you've you know, kind of painted a picture as to what the problems facing ownership and consent are, uh, I wanted to ask you on a question about something you mentioned in that same Liveman piece uh, regarding the two alternative models that exist to viewing data through this ownership lens, right? One is uh, having a data trust where it's subject centric and one having a data trust where it's collector centric. So could you walk us through again, like what would these data trusts look like and what the differences between collector centric and subject centric data trusts would be and if you have any preferences? Uh, as to you know why you think these models are more successful than the data ownership one. So so first, Adish, I want to correct you on one thing, which is on the on on the concept of ownership, right? So yeah. I um, I try to stay away from uh, talking about data in terms of owning it because mm -hmm. actually it's really difficult uh, to own data. Right. Um, like who really owns it, so, right? Yeah. So you know, there's there's personal information that I generate. But that personal, and you know, maybe Google's collecting it, maybe Apple's collecting it. But that information, that little, you know, small data point that I generate, right. is of no use to anyone because you know one individual's little piece of information really doesn't make up big data. It's right. when you actually have big data, when all this information sort of combines together, that right. you start getting data sets which are of value. Kind of now, like I an aggregate, right? The strength is in the aggregate as opposed to the individual. Exactly, exactly. So the, all, the, all the profiles that Facebook builds about you that eventually Cambridge Analytica uses to win the US election for Russia, right. that is of no use if you talk one person's data at a time. Right. So <laughs> very fair, very even fair. if that one person says, look, I contributed to the data, so you give me you know, a one millionth uh, share of that data, um, that doesn't make any sense because you know you maybe you are one millionth of the database, but if, if it wasn't for Facebook who actually built the software that collected the information from not just you but the various other people that made up the million, uh, your data is completely useless. Right. So it's this proportionate value of uh, a large data set is not useful at all. Fair enough. No, I completely agree. And thank you so much for that clarification. You are correct that the value of individual data points are nowhere near as valuable as the data set as a whole, right? So I completely buy that. I completely buy that. 
So then let's move to the second question, which is, you know, the, the uh, collector-centric trusts and subject-centric trusts. Now, uh, a, a good example of this, so, you know, essentially what, what I was trying to figure out was data is being collected in various uh, silos, uh, and the value of the data really uh, lies when perhaps those silos uh, inter, interconnect with each other, right? So uh, there are projects where, you know, Google, um, Facebook, uh, I, you know, I think a bunch of Silicon Valley, uh, social media companies are trying to create portability arrangements so that the data from one is portable uh, into the other. Um, and uh, you know, that uh, uh, arrangement is very much a collector-centric trust where you know, the, the data collectors, each of them individually, Facebook, Google, I can't remember who, who are part of that project, but you know, all those big companies essentially uh, decide what is going to be uh, shared among each other. Uh, and that very much is a collector-centric trust. So, you know, the, the, the uh, customers do get a benefit because right. now their trust score on, say, you know, I'm just making this up. If Uber was part of it, then right. your Uber trust score is now portable with your Airbnb trust score. So if you're a really highly rated Uber passenger, then, you know, maybe you'll get some brownie points when you go to, to Airbnb saying, look, this is a trustworthy uh, tenant. So wow. that really is is sort of the, um, the 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 structure of a collector-centric trust. The problem with that, though, yeah. is that once again, this is very much driven by the data collectors. And uh, the reason why I thought a, a subject-centric trust is is really interesting is mm -hmm. because if we can create something like that, essentially what we're doing is we're putting the power of the portability into the hands of the data subject. Um, we're creating arrangements where the portability works to the advantage of the data subject right. uh, because the uh, the interest of that trust is aligned with the data subject. Mm -hmm. And India has a really good example of this because we have built the DEPA framework, which is the Data Empowerment and Portability Architecture Framework, um, which essentially is an, a, an attempt in the financial services sector to port information from each financial sector player to the other. You know, right now, Typically, it'll work between banks, but just imagine if it works between NDFCs, if it works with the with you know, the GST records. Uh, so, as an example, today, if you want to take a loan, you need to go to a bank. You need to give the bank information about um, uh, you know your your past history. Um, essentially, that information is based on bank statements. But what is really useful is if you can give them transaction information. You know, my my bank balance may be low. Uh, but the volume of transactions that I have transacted uh, may be extremely high, uh, and that should may entitle me to a loan because I mean I have a really successful business because you know I, I run a low margin business but a high value high volume business. Right. Uh, currently, there's no way to show that uh, reliably, but if we connect the GST network uh, and allow uh, lenders to take a look at my GST transaction history for the last six months. That gives me a really clear understanding of what uh, transactions I've done because it's it's completely verified. This is uh, these transactions are transactions that I pay tax on uh, that the government has cross-verified because the person to whom I've provided the service um, has to you know uh, register on the GST network. I have to register on the GST network, so it's sort of double accounted in that sense. Right. So it's an extremely powerful tool, um, and you that I think is a good example. Uh, sorry to just one quick uh, clarification I'd like to see from you. So you would say that that measure is just a great way to gauge something like 
financial credit worthiness for instance right correct and you could do this in any other sector so for instance uh, in the health sector right uh, you want a second opinion so mm-hmm. you've gone to a particular doc, uh, hospital let's say you've got cancer and you know cancer i picked that because usually you want a second opinion if someone says you got cancer no, but um, the the problem is that when you go to a second hospital they'll make you do all the tests again um, right. because the data from one hospital is not easily portable to the other hospital. Uh, if we can create a mechanism uh, which is very much focused on, on the patient to allow the data to port from one medical system to the other, and it doesn't even have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be cancer. It could just be, you know, you want the history of all the medicines that you've purchased. And okay. if you've done it online, you should be able to port that information to your GP so that your GP, before he prescribes you some new medicine, can actually see, you know, you took this particular medicine because you went to the dentist and that medicine may interfere with the stomach medicine that he's giving you. He'll be much wiser when he prescribes things to you. So the power, you know, we're now in a world where everything is data driven uh, and we have the ability to port the data, but still we keep our data in silos. So your, your dentist doesn't talk to your gastroenterologist when quite frankly, Um, the things that happen in your mouth have a direct relationship to what's happening in your stomach. But we've got to have a sensible way by which the dentist can talk to the gastroenterologist or rather the data, the the historical data that you generated from dentist visits can actually be useful to the gastroenterologist when you go to it. That's, yeah, I I completely agree with that. I think that's such an interesting perspective, the idea that we should leverage data in, you know, having interconnected networks so that different facets of our lives can come together using our data to make, you know, more informed financial decisions, more informed medical decisions, legal decisions, whatever the case may be. I think that's such a cool perspective. Uh, Just kind of to play devil's advocate over here is given that data is currency, right? Uh, As we are in the data driven economy, like, right, like you rightly said, given that data is currency, uh, what happens now if, you know, my data is being nefariously used against me. Like the best case scenario is what you described, right? Wherein my dentist can talk to my oncologist or whoever, and they can make like informed medical decisions about me. Same for linking like GSTs to other financial intermediaries as well. But that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is if my data is used against me for nefarious purposes, right? What would your assurance or what would your advice to people who harbor that worst case scenario mentality in their heads? Yeah. So look, I mean, technology is neutral. It all depends on how it's used. So just as it can be used for good, uh, it can be used for evil. Um, and, and, you know, that's sort of the, the basic uh, nature of, of technology. Uh, no matter how good a technology is, someone's going to find a way to subvert it. True. So if that's a given... What is the people matter, right? Exactly. And, that, and that's really my solution in many ways. So, you know, I wrote a paper, uh, I want to say two or three years ago, um, which articulated an accountability framework. And the, um, the point that I make in all of that is that uh, right now, a lot of the onus is on the data subject, the person who is giving up the data to data collectors to be careful of you know, how they do it, what they do with it, et cetera, et cetera. But quite frankly, they have very little control over it because you know, if I put my, yeah, of course I have control over my username and password and I've got to keep it secure. But if I uh, take that, um, uh, you know, if I if, if I take the uh, data controller at his word and say, and you know, he says, look, this is going to be secure. I'm going to use it for these purposes, 
and then for some reason, you know, it gets hijacked or uh, it gets used for a purpose that's um, that's not what they intended. And you know, the example I give, uh, you know, I'd like to go back to is Cambridge Analytica because, quite frankly, Facebook uh, uh, took the information right. with consent. Right. Um, and you know, everyone who gave that information knew if they had read the privacy policy that right. Facebook was going to you uh, uh, essentially give uh, information of friends as well as friends of friends. And because they had diluted it from just friends to friends of friends, Cambridge Analytica got access to a vast amount of data. Right. Um, and when they had access to that vast amount of data, they could do whatever they did. But right. the user, uh, the, the reason why the user said, okay, I will give you the permission to uh, connect me to friends and friends of friends is because the, the user said, look, I want to meet a long lost friend. Now there's a good chance that, uh, you know, I may remember my friends, but you know, my friend may remember someone else who I've forgotten. And this is a really cool way to get in touch with a long lost friend. Now that was the stated purpose of it. But right. Cambridge Analytica subverted it to actually use this friend of friends feature to generate a database which is exponentially larger than what they would have otherwise generated. Right. So the, this is where the accountability comes in. I am not, as the user, supposed to rack my brains and think of every uh, possible uh, bad use to which right. the, the you say that's my an unfair onus to place on the user. Completely. Because right. the user does not know and has no idea uh, all the various contracts that the controller is, is entering into. So the user does not, user, you know, the, the uh, controller will say, look, I'm giving you a really nifty way in which you can uh, connect to long lost friends. Mm -hmm. And you only think about that, right? And so you say, that's, it's, it's cool. I want to do that. I, I will go ahead and do that. But the, it's up to the controller to say, look, maybe I've given them this mechanism. But someone, if I'm not careful, will misuse it to generate this vast database, and I should be careful of that. My model, which moves away from consent to accountability, actually places that onus on the data controller to say that you have got to be accountable, not just for the foreseeable, but also for the unforeseeable consequences of what you're going to do with the, with the data uh, subject's information. Because quite frankly, there is an asymmetry of information. Uh, you have uh, a knowledge of a lot more things than the data subject uh, can ever have. Right. And so it is unfair to, in a sense, use the data subject's consent as a get out of jail free card, when right. actually you are the one who has to be uh, employing the due diligence that you need to ensure that even if the uh, data subject consented to this, that, that no harm should come, should befall the data subject because of some algorithm that you're using. So that's my answer uh, to, uh, you know, what happens if consent is misused and if some person uses it uh, for ill-gotten uh, gains. No, I, I, I don't think there are very many people in the world who could have put it better than yourself. So thank you so much for that. That was very, very, very educational. Uh, and I do, I do, now the more I think about it, I just completely agree that it's such a, like you said, it is an unfair onus and the power structures make it such that there is an asymmetry of information, right? If we're being completely honest and data users tend to think only in the super short term, right? Like, like you said, Hey, I want to reconnect with a long lost friend of mine. They're not thinking about these implications and as to what my information is going to be used for. So I, I completely buy that. I, I think that that's such a valuable piece of advice and information for 
our listeners. Uh, now, I actually want to ask you a question on something we've talked about a couple of times already on this conversation, and that's pertaining to Cambridge Analytica. So, you're a digital content creator with your own podcast, and as am I. And a big concern I had is how exactly, given that this is the age of digital content, right? How exactly would our content consumption patterns impact our privacy, especially given the whole Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal? Um, how, how, so could you just repeat that again, uh, Anish? How would our content yeah, absolutely. So I think that, patterns? So I think right now that, you know, we are in the age of digital content. I'd say that it's safe to say that. And, you know, you are a content creator as am I. So for the benefit of our listeners, if you could shed some light on how our content consumption patterns, like what we watch on Facebook watch on Instagram's TV and these various other like content facets of social media apps, right. That currently exist that people are consuming. How do those content consumption patterns play into our privacy? Like, should I currently have to be extra wary before I click on any video I see on Instagram? Should I be wary before I click on, let's say there's a cool podcast on Facebook watch that I want to watch uh, or get access to. Should I be extra cautious about clicking on that given the whole Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal, or do you not think content consumption patterns have any impact on a user's privacy? Well, I mean, it depends on where you're watching it uh, and what you're doing with it and what the platform that's serving you the content, you know, what their, um, uh, what their incentives are aligned uh, towards. So let's just, let's just take a few examples for content. Um, Facebook's, uh, you know, Facebook is a free service. Um, the only uh, monetization for Facebook really is the ads uh, that uh, uh, they can sell. Uh, and the basis of uh, someone, you know, buying ads on Facebook is that Facebook is the most addictive site uh, on the planet right now. And so uh, it's designed um, to exploit the attention economy. Uh, and everything that Facebook does is really designed to ensure that you stay there longer and longer. So if you go to Facebook, uh, chances are you can go down a rabbit hole and not come out for you know, a couple of hours. And that's great because you're then guaranteeing to advertisers, look, I've got a site which is so good at keep, keeping people's attention that if you sell, if you buy an advertisement on this site, uh, people will stay there for an hour and look at you for an hour. Right. Um, that's, a, that's a great sell. So Facebook's incentive is aligned to ensure that they can do everything uh, that is possible to keep you from clicking off the site, which means the only way they can do that is to really understand you uh, and to understand what it is that interests you. Now, if you look at Netflix, on the other hand, uh -huh. Netflix has a very different kind of an approach. They still want to understand you, but the only reason why they want to understand you is they want, uh, you know, as the uh, founder of Netflix said, my competition is sleep. So essentially, he wants to ensure that, you know, you, you are so addicted and you are binge watching uh, uh, programs nonstop that uh, you continue to stay on that site. Mm -hmm. um, there are, there are, but you know, they're not incentivized in any way other than to get you to pay your subscription every, uh, every month. So as long as you, you get enough useful content, if you binge watch or if you don't binge watch, as long as it's interesting enough for you to continue to stay there, they will continue to uh, 
provide you that content. Um, uh, you know, uh, movie halls, they don't really care that much. Uh, if the halls are full, they're full. If they're not, they're not. They're not really tracking your, your individual con uh, preferences. They're tracking the preferences across the whole country. And that's, so, so the point I'm trying to make mm -hmm. is that each of these various services right. are incentivized in different ways. Right. And based on what their uh, incentive alignment is, uh, they will pick up information because that is essentially their business model. You may, you may choose to pick up one or the other of them because you really like it. But I think you've got to uh, understand that uh, you know, if, if it's free, it's because they are earning revenue somewhere else. And part of the reason why they're earning that revenue elsewhere is because you are willingly uh, participating in their revenue model. And if you're okay with that, and a lot of people are okay with that because they're perfectly happy to be entertained for free, uh, right. then, you know, it's okay. No, fair enough. I think that trade-off is just so interesting when you paint it that way, right? And I think that the core takeaway is that you have to recognize that all these content sharing platforms in some way or another do have access to your information. I guess it's just they each have different motivations behind them, right? That's it. And, you know, if I personally, I'm not on Facebook, mm -hmm. uh, and that's because I, you know, I, I, I find that um, I would much rather read a book or do something else uh, than get stuck into that rabbit hole. Right. Uh, and so I've just taken a conscious call uh, not to use Facebook. I know it's a trade-off because there are a lot of events that are only on Facebook. A lot of my friends, you know, uh, discuss where they're meeting and what they're going to do only through Facebook, and I, you know, lose out on that. But that's sort of a trade-off that each of us has to make. No, fair enough. And I think, honestly, Mr. Mahathan, it's very, very, very hard to argue against the lifestyle benefits of your trade-off, right? Versus like sitting on your phone for an hour and a half, losing track of time on some menial piece of information versus, you know, like you said, you'd rather read a book or just focus on some sort of structure. I think, yeah, it's super hard to argue that, oh no, being on Facebook for those two hours is definitely better for you. But yeah, that is, that's not only like, as always, this great lifestyle choice, but it's great analysis on what these content sharing platforms mean for us in this data-driven age. Uh, so just two more questions before we wrap up. Uh, my second last question pertains to an episode of yours, of your own podcast, actually, The Ex Machina. Uh, again, to all my listeners and viewers, uh, the link to the description will be in the bio of this video and podcast. Uh, but uh, one of the latest episodes focused on India and urban mobility. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist or a genius to figure out that, okay, the traffic solution in India is bad or urban mobility in India needs, you know, improvement. It does take a genius, however, to figure out what the solution of that is. So what do you think the, you know, off the top of your head, the first couple of measures we need to undertake to begin solving the grave problem of urban mobility we find ourselves in? Okay, so I, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil too much of the story um, in in the episode, but essentially, uh, you know, the the, the w one of the one of the uh, solutions that I propose is around sharing. Uh, now, you know, sharing is not uncommon to us. Um, we, uh, I, I'm going to say, maybe about uh, forty to fifty percent of urban mobility, and it varies from city to city. Uh, you know, in cities where um, public transport is much more efficient, obviously, it'll be a higher percentage. But generally speaking, 
um, there is a significant percentage of urban mobility that is already uh, public transport, which essentially is um, uh, you know, uh, shared in that many people are using the same facility to go from point A to point B. With Uber and Ola and these new uh, ride-sharing technologies, it's become much deeper because you, know, you can uh, enjoy the comfort of uh, driving around in a, in a sedan or in a reasonably uh, luxurious car um, yeah, without actually owning it or having any of the headaches that come with it, which include finding parking and maintaining the car, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so in that, I, I, you know, I, I feel that we are moving in all our cities towards a, uh, a model where we can actually, uh, uh, you know, I think younger generations may never, never own a car. I mean, when, we, uh, when we went, joined the workforce, the first thing you wanted to do uh, is make enough money to be able to buy a car. Uh, but I don't think the younger generations feel that same, uh, that, that same enthusiasm uh, with ownership of a car. And I think uh, in time that uh, eventually will go away because you know, if you have a solution, whether it's shared, whether it is not, that will reliably pick you up from wherever you are in the city and drop you to wherever you want to go, right. uh, why or would you want to own the car? Right. And, and you know, today we want to own the car because there are many places where, or many times of the day, where it is not reliable to, um, uh, to get uh, urban transport. But if you think of you know, cities like New York, where pretty much any time of the day and night, you will find either a bus or a taxi or uh, you know, the, the, uh, the subway all available to get you from one place to the other. This is why no one in New York owns a car. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it's just, yeah, and, and, and parking is extremely expensive. Uh, it costs too much to maintain the car. So if you're sitting out in the suburbs where there's no metro and there's no public transport, you don't own a car, but if you're in New York, yeah, and that's true of of Bombay. Um, you know, most people in in I mean, a lot of people have vehicles, but they can get by perfectly fine without it. Right. Um, so, look, I, I mean, I think the the point uh, then becomes how do you make it uh, efficient? Uh, how do you uh, ensure that we can uh, still protect the environment while we're doing that? Uh, and you know, the only solution there is uh, is your know, shared electric vehicles um, and. That sort of is some of the detail uh, of the episode um, where, uh, you know, the, 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 everyone intuitively knows that it is more uh, affordable to use electric vehicles. It's just that there are so many challenges with the model that unless you find a smart economic model uh, to run a fleet of electric vehicles, uh, you're never going to be able to uh, have um, EVs uh, as the primary mode of shared transport. And really, that is uh, what I talk about in some detail uh, in that episode. No, absolutely. And like you rightly said, I don't want I don't want to too many spoilers from the episode. And I just cannot urge every listener who's listening to this right now to go and check out Mr. Martin's podcast right after this. Uh, one last question from that episode is: uh, You talk about how the future of EVs is generally the trajectory we should be taking, right? Especially here in India. Uh, and you talked a bit. Of, you touched on a topic uh, called battery swapping. Uh, could you just spend like 10, 15 seconds just walking us through what exactly that is and why it's beneficial? Yeah. Look, I mean, I think um, in order to uh, to conceptually uh, uh, sort of you, you know, reframe the way you think about vehicles in your mind, you've just got to uh, separate the vehicle from the uh, power that the vehicle needs in order to move. 
Now, from the dawn of uh, the, uh, the, the motor car, uh, we have fitted uh, electric, uh, sorry, we have fitted uh, tanks uh, into the car, which we fill up with uh, petrol, gasoline, diesel, whatever fuel it is. Um, and that powers our internal combustion engine, which moves the car from one place to the other. When right. we run out of petrol, we go to the petrol bunk, we fill it up again, and then we keep moving. And then when we built the electric vehicle, we essentially used the same mental model, which is that uh, we fitted batteries into the car, and then whenever we ran low on battery, we would go and charge it up. Now, the problem is unlike uh, petrol, which you can just uh, you know, fill up in a tank in, in five minutes or less, uh, it takes, even with the fastest fast charging solution, at least an hour to charge a battery. And, and usually it, it, you require um, you know, at least five to eight hours to charge a battery. And that's, in, you know, given what we're used to, it's just unacceptable uh, for most people. So the battery swapping idea essentially means that you know, when you have run out of power, rather than charge your battery, uh, you essentially pull the old batteries out and put a, a new battery in. This is something that we're very used to when it comes to toys and uh, you know all these gadgets that we have around us where we just pop out the battery and put a new battery in but we never thought to apply that uh, to a vehicle because obviously it's 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 a much larger thing it's like going to a petrol uh, pump and uh, the the gas station attendant just pulls the petrol tank out of your car and pushes a a, f a completely full petrol tank back in that you know just it, yeah, it no, is, it's literally like replacing entire tanks, right? So Correct. But, you know, the other example that I give to make this a little more palatable is before the uh, internal combustion engine, we had horse carriages. Um, and uh, when you want to uh, uh, drive a horse carriage across the country, uh, essentially what you would do is you would have uh, various stations where uh, you would have um, horses rested, uh, fully fed, waiting for you and you drive your horse carriage into that station, swap out your horse, the tired horse that has just uh, ridden all night uh, and, and swap that out with a new pair of horses that are fresh uh, and you ride those horses on. So look, we've, we've, we've had many mental models by which we've designed uh, locomotion. Um, when we switched from uh, the horse carriage to the, uh, the internal combustion engine, uh, we essentially put the horse into the car and, and fixed it there. And we found a way to feed the car. Um, if instead we uh, had just sort of swapped it out um, uh, in the way that we can with batteries, it would have been a completely different mental model. And that probably is the most useful mental model for this. And so that is uh, uh, the way I describe uh, battery swapping. It's, it, it feels unreal because we're so used to thinking of cars in a particular way. But actually, it's no different from uh, you know uh, uh, when when your torch light, uh, your torch is uh, is out of charge, you just pop in and a, a, a remote or cells like, like a TV remote or PS4 controller or something like that. Exactly. Exactly. Was very cool. I think the biggest, well, some of the coolest takeaways I had from just this general conversation with you is how so much can be you know at least attempted to like start getting solved if we just shift our lens a bit, if we just change the way we approach a lot of these things. And I think that is a really, really cool perspective to keep in mind. So just one last question before we wrap this, what's been an amazing conversation up is uh, for both our Indian as well as non-Indian listeners, everyone I think is aware today in geopolitics that India is kind of this sleeping beast, right? We're all waiting to 
you know, become that big stakeholder in geopolitics. And we are, we are getting there in some sense. What do you think the three areas that we collectively as a country should be focusing on in order to unlock our true potential and unlock our true future? Um, look, I, I mean, I don't know if I'll, if I'll make it to three, but let me just tell you what I think is, is really important. I think, um, you know, we've got a huge uh, untapped potential uh, in that, uh, you know, much of uh, the GDP of India, too much of the GDP of India is concentrated too far up the chain. Uh, and we've got to find ways in which, and, you know, we can certainly use technology to do that, uh, ways in which we can leverage um, people across the stack. Uh, I think a lot of the platform technologies that uh, we've been building in this country, uh, Aadhaar, which is the identity platform, um, UPI, which is the payment platform, and all the other various platforms that are coming up, uh, have a tremendous uh, ability to unlock the potential uh, that is currently uh, uh, hidden away outside uh, of the limelight. So I think that's sort of the uh, the, the first uh, key area that I think we've got to uh, we've got to really focus on. Um, I, you know, I, I, as as you can imagine, I have uh, a huge faith uh, in data and in technology, and so one of the things um, that you know. I, I think we, we certainly should, um, should should try and achieve, uh, it's, it's easier said than done, uh, is to actually use data to leapfrog um, past generations. Uh, so we've done it in many occasions in the past. Uh, most notably, uh, we leapfrogged uh, landline telephone connections all the way to, uh, to mobile. And so you know, China and India showed the rest of the world that uh, this is what it is like to be a mobile first generation and there's huge power in that because uh, you know we're walking around with little hands uh, um, that are always on and uh, we have to find uh, new and different ways uh, in which uh, to to you know achieve achieve our potential and I, and I guess um, you know it, it's a bit of a cliche we've always been known for what's called frugal innovation um, some other people call it jugard which is uh, a, a bit pejorative but it's at the end of the day um, uh, the ability uh, to really uh, find solutions um, that uh, from sort of unlikely places. Uh, uh, you know, I, what, what I really don't like uh, is picking up uh, solutions that uh, have been used in the West or in other countries and applying them to India because, first of all, they don't, they don't fit properly. Uh, and secondly, they don't give enough uh, credit to uh, our ability. Sorry, Anish? Oh, no, sorry. I was just, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I was just saying that the context in which we operate is so different, right? So it's kind of hard to just blindly apply what may have worked in America or Europe to the Indian context. But, and yet so many people still do that. And that really, um, uh, you know, a, lo a lot of people say, look, this is the way in which it was done. And so uh, why reinvent the wheel? But I say, look, it's not a question of reinventing the wheel. I, essentially, you've got to find uh, horses for courses. And it's not like we can't come up with solutions that, uh, uh, you know, that will help us achieve uh, what we need to do. Uh, in fact, if we can really say, look, let's let's come up with a solution that, that is suitable for India, it probably will be more efficient uh, and more effective, given that it would have been designed for these conditions. No, oh, very, very true. And with that, uh, we bring a wrap on what's been just an amazing, amazing, amazing conversation. Mr. Martin, thank you so much for your time. 
And I hope you had as much fun being interviewed as I did interviewing yourself. Uh, and for all my listeners, I would strongly urge you to check out the X Machina podcast. Again, link is going to be in the description below. I'm also going to be attaching a link of Mr. Martin's book, as well as just previous pieces on, you know, data and privacy that he's written for your perusal. It's highly, highly informative. And I cannot stress enough just what a big value add it will be to add that to your daily content list. Uh, Mr. Martin, thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you, Anish. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.